Good morning. So I was looking at my calendar earlier in the week, and I noticed a particular date that happened to be the anniversary of my maternal grandparents. And I was thinking about their marriage and the lives that they had together, and how grateful I was that they were able to celebrate 61 years together before my grandmother passed away in 2002. Now, I am mindful that longevity is not the sole marker of a good marriage. That the goal in marriage is not necessarily just to be married for 25 years or 50 years or 60 years. That the goal of marriage, among many things, is companionship and partnership and growth and outward focus and trust and love and hopefully humor and joy as well. My grandparents, I think, were close to that perfect example of marriage. Two flawed individuals for sure, but they cared deeply for one another, and that love flowed through their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now, there's a story of our marriage in our scripture lesson today as well, but it's one that did not have the markers of companionship and respect, or love and growth, or trust. This summer of preaching through the Minor Prophets is starting to feel like one of those awful cooking challenges in which contestants have to do things like put squid in dessert or smoke a beef brisket in under an hour. But we're committed at this point so we're, we're in this together. So here we go with the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, if you haven't looked at it in a while, I would encourage you to do so. But know that it really ought to come with a content warning for today's listeners. There's language that is frankly rude, triggering, and inappropriate for our younger ears. The hard truth about this, though, is that it is holy scripture, that this is just as much God's holy word as the gospel lesson for the lectionary, which we didn't consider or read today, but it was the lesson where Jesus teaches the Lord's prayer. He teaches the disciples how to pray. This is just as much a part of the same Bible, part of our religious heritage, part of the words that Jesus knew and read and taught and lived. For a bit of background and context, Hosea is actually the only prophet who comes from the northern kingdom. What is the northern kingdom, you ask? Well, we're in a time period when the kingdom of Israel had split. They had divided between the north and the south. The north had retained the name Israel, and the south had become known as the kingdom of Judah. You may recall that the prophet Amos, for instance, was from the south and was plucked up and called by God to go and preach a hard word to the people of the north. But Hosea is a local prophet. During the time, um, the king of Israel was King Jeroboam, who we have learned was considered an evil king. And these were days, though, of expansion and prosperity. But when we look at the full scope of history, we know that we're also getting close to the final days of this kingdom before it would fall to the Assyrians. 
As we know from the prophet Amos, God showed Amos a series of visions with lessons of judgment attached. But instead of showing Hosea a series of images or visions, God gives Hosea a whole course for his life, a completely different task. God says to Hosea, go and be a living sermon illustration of judgment. Go and find a wife and have children, but not just any wife. You may have noticed, especially if you were following along in your pew Bible, that we read today from a different translation that there are different words used to describe the woman that Hosea is to marry. And we read from a different translation out loud, not because I wanted to sugarcoat anything, but because I wanted to be mindful of the younger ears that are in our presence. But you are welcome to take a look at page 835 in your pew Bible and to look at how Hosea's wife is described. There are different translations, too. The one that we read from today, the Good News translation, used the word unfaithful. And frankly, that's the tamest. Some translations would attach an exchange of money to her actions. Some have used words that are slurs or insults that are far too casually hurled even at women today. As we read through the book of Hosea, we quickly transfer from this particular marriage between two people, Hosea and his wife named Gomer, to more of a metaphorical understanding of the relationship between God and the people of Israel. Now there is value here if we consider and imagine a marriage at its best as that union of love and fulfillment and mutual vulnerability and growth. There's beauty in thinking of that sort of relationship and union and oneness as a way of understanding God's love and concern for us and our love and concern for God. There is a beauty in that, a beauty in thinking about the Apostle Paul's words in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. But there's also a flaw here as well, because there is, of course, an inherent hierarchy in our understanding of our relationship between God and the people, between God and us. There's an unequal power differential that we do not see in our understanding of human marriage. Now, there is a debate among scholars about whether or not Hosea actually literally marries a woman named Gomer, or if this is all meant to be one big story, an allegory that's entirely made up to, to prove a point. Treating this, however, of an al- as an allegory does not soften the language nor the implications. The words, the ideas present in the text are still out there still drifting around, and with the weight and respect of scripture, tends to give permission or excuse or normalizes certain behaviors and attitudes. Figurative language does not flow both ways. This may seem sort of basic, but a metaphor 
is a way of describing something that is new or unfamiliar or different in terms that we already know or that are easy to understand. It's a way to bring that which is extraordinary into ordinary terms, the incomprehensible into the language that we can comprehend. But far too often, we try to flip this back around to make the metaphor flow back, to cast then the ordinary with the extraordinary. All of our language for God, every name that we use for God, every understanding that we have for God is a metaphor. And at some point it all gets stretched a little too thin or breaks down. The famous feminist theologian, Mary Daly, once said, in speaking of this tendency to flip metaphors back around and critiquing exclusively male language for God, she said, if God is male, then male is God. So as we read through the book of Hosea, then if God is like a husband, then husbands are like God. But then when it comes to feminine imagery, that reverse flow ceases. In scripture, God is described as one who gives birth. And yet we know that so often that one who gives birth is not often considered to be like God. Jesus is a mother hen, for instance, and yet we usually don't think of mother hens as particularly divine. What's at work there is our sense of tradition, a tradition that has also placed a higher value on the voices and experiences of men, which has created a hierarchy where women seemingly are almost always a step or more behind or below, often objects but not agents, frequently cherished but not always respected. When we consider scripture, we often have to sift through for these stories of women. In this case of Hosea, from the very beginning, we are presented with a female character right from the start. And by the third verse, we have learned her name. We are mindful that so many of the women in the Bible are not only without voice or agency or identity, but often their names are no longer known to us as well. We are told that this woman's name is Gomer. And so often in the Bible, names have significance and they mean something for the story. Gomer's name means to complete, which doesn't that sound awfully romantic and nice for the name of a spouse? But complete, especially in Hebrew, also means to finish and it means the end. And so when we remember that we're dealing with a Hebrew prophet and judgment, we are to think of the end in her name. She has three children who are also given names of significance. Now, I know that many of us, when we are contemplating names for our children, we do so with a bit of intention. We go for names because we like the way that they sound or names that have a deep family meaning or names that have a different meaning that we just really like. Hosea and Gomer have three children who they do not get to name because God chooses 
those names for them. And this is what those names mean. God's judgment, no compassion, and not my people. Ouch. And that's the point, of course, that all of this is about judgment towards the northern kingdom of Israel. Judgment for a people who have not been faithful, for their sins and idolatry, for bloodshed and violence, for trampling the poor, for not loving God and the people of God as well as they should. Now, so often as we are considering this prophet, our sympathy is directed toward Hosea for his sacrifice of taking this sort of woman to be his wife, because we assume he probably wouldn't have chosen her otherwise, that this is part of his obedience toward God. Bishop Will Willimon writes of this, saying, quote, that this is a messed up marriage in which a sexually promiscuous, repeatedly unfaithful spouse is repeatedly forgiven, taken back, excused, and loved. A scandalous idea, not often thought about in polite, proper, religious circles. Now there is great grace and beauty in this messy image, in this image of undeserved love and forgiveness. The type of love that Charles Wesley wrote about, quote, stupendous love of God most high, full of unutterable grace. But there's also, as you read through the book of Hosea, a cycle of forgiveness that instead of also just beautiful and full of grace, upon further consideration, sounds an awful lot like the cycle of domestic abuse and violence, whether physical or emotional, seen or unseen. The text itself has God use Gomer as an object lesson. And when we consider this, we see that there is misogyny baked right into this holy text that then seeps throughout the centuries of interpretation, which continue then to reflect and perpetuate a patriarchal mindset. Wilda Gaffney is a womanist scholar and she notes the abrasive nature of the words that are used to describe Gomer. She says, quote, the spittle-laced violence with which this word has been imposed on women and girls, often accompanying or preceding physical violence, and the enduring emotional and spiritual violence it begets. She goes on to note, however, that this type of harm is why she cannot simply dismiss a text or ignore it, even if we want to. She urges us not to run from a fight, even a fight with a hard text. Like Jacob wrestling with God in the night, we work to squeeze a blessing out of scripture to find the grace, the good news, the hope, the reminder that God is bigger than all our language, that God is bigger than our love, 
so that even when we are weary of objectifying women's bodies, of holding women responsible for men's actions, of debating how much women are in control or to blame, or considering purity culture with its strict gender binary, which tends to place the responsibility of cisgendered men's sexuality on the shoulders of young women and has proven to be a source of trauma. There's an inherent problem in the fact that Hosea is conflated with God and Gomer with the people and the land. And as you're reading through, if you make it to chapter two, it actually outlines sexual violence as punishment. And it's frankly difficult to even read. Gomer is objectified. She's not seen as an individual. She is property. And her agency, her choice, her actions all belong to her husband. Generations later, we will see God enter into human history in a new way. We will see God be born in the world as a human infant. We will see God choose for God's mother, a young woman who will have those same slurs hurled at her, those same assumptions made about her virtue. We will see that baby grow into a young man who will cease the stoning of a woman while the male counterpart is unmentioned. And we will see him sit and eat with more women who bear that same label, that same assumption, that same shame. This man, who we know as the word made flesh to dwell among us, God's word incarnate, Emmanuel, Jesus, helps us to illuminate and understand the written word of God, even when, and especially, it's difficult to read or hear. From the words of Henry Nouwen, Jesus says, let go of your complaints. Forgive those who loved you poorly. Step over your feelings of being rejected. And have the courage to trust that you won't fall into an abyss of nothingness, but into the safe embrace of a God whose love will heal all your wounds. That no matter the wounds or the harm, no matter the life experiences or choices, no matter how or why our lives have turned out as they have, no matter what we actually might deserve, we know and have the assurance that God's wide mercy and love for us is so abundant to be scandalous. Thanks be to God.